uh, I was here at the Folklorama Pavilion this week, the Ukrainian Pavilion, and it was awesome. It was a packed house. It was so good, and I saw that they Facebook Soul Sanctuary this morning saying thank you. So, um, yeah, it's been an incredible week. Now, uh, this morning, obviously, with Folklorama, we're doing things a little bit differently, and uh, something that's very key to this morning is being at a table with other people. Now, sometimes we show up to church, we might show up alone, we might show up knowing somebody or remotely, or you may have seen it online. Uh, this is where we invite each other into community. After all, we're sitting around tables. This is perfect. Uh, so I want you to look around right now, and we're going to take the next two minutes. If you are sitting at a table alone, I encourage you to go to another table where there's some people there. Uh, now, the flip side of that is if you have some empty seats at your table, it's on you to go and find somebody who's sitting alone. Maybe you're sitting, uh, just you and your spouse or whatever. Get into community. Christ invites us into community with him. So we extend that invitation and we invite other people into community with us. Does that make sense? So look around. You can talk. You can say, hey, come over to my table. And I'll leave you with that. And I'll wait up here awkwardly until I don't see anyone alone at their table. Okay, look around because we're not done yet. All right, here we go. This is what I like to see. This is, a, consider this lesson number one for this morning. Uh, community doesn't just happen. Sometimes we think, all right, we're going to show up to a church and we're going to get plugged in. We're going to get involved in community. It doesn't just happen. And community is intentional. Like I said, Christ intentionally invited us to live with him. We intentionally invite other people to live with us. Another note, you really want to experience community at a church. Get involved, serve. There's nothing like being shoulder to shoulder with other people, connecting with them in that, that takes you further and further into true and genuine community. Now, uh, the message today, the title is The Other Brother. We're going to look at Luke chapter 15. And now, I've had the pleasure over the last two years to teach multiple grade 9 English classes. And uh, there's probably one or two, actually I saw one for sure of my grade 9 students from last year who's in the room, and I know he's really stoked that he gets to hear Mr. Machalski at school and now here at church on a Sunday morning. Uh, but I'm that English teacher uh, who is up at the front of the class talking about Shakespeare, and I know this about myself, and it's perhaps not the best thing, but when I start talking about something like Shakespeare, I get really fired up. I really love it, and I can tell, oh, I got an amen, whew, actually, you taught me Shakespeare when I was in grade nine, that's crazy, man, that's crazy, whew, look at that, you planted a seed in my heart, and that, oh, that's overwhelming, look at that, I didn't even put that together, that's funny, I was actually just at, at coffee talking with another teacher who one of their students showed up at Seoul and was like, I think that's my teacher. It's like the past. They just cross and cross again. Uh, that's something else. Okay, where am I? Where am I? Okay, yeah. Back. Because of Miss Edson at the time, uh, my, my love for Shakespeare, it blossomed. And a lot of people look at Shakespeare, especially in grade 9, and they're like, ooh, it's Shakespeare. Ooh, I don't like this. Or the language is all funny or whatever it may be. 
Um, but I'm up there, and admittedly, I'm a little bit too into it at times. I enjoy it a little bit too much. So Yuri, wherever you are, I saw you in here. I'm sorry. Hey, there he is. <laughs> See, but there's this thing about Shakespeare, and there's this thing about my grade 9 English class. And uh, as I've uh, grown as somebody who reads, I've began to love the story. And in making films, I've realized that it, it comes about telling the story. There's something about the story. And a couple years ago, I finished my English degree, and throughout that degree, we exclusively studied works of fiction. The classics in English literature are rarely nonfiction. You look at Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, Spencer's The Fairy Queen, all these are massive volumes that are not fiction. And you have to study them, you have to look in depth into them, and you have to pull out some sort of meaning or perhaps some sort of allegorical significance to your own life. They must be studied, they must be uh, enjoyed, but also thoroughly examined. And throughout my course in English literature, as I studied, initially, I rarely enjoyed the content. It was often monotonous. I did have some eureka moments where I was like, oh, this is sweet, I love this, whatever it may be. Uh, but for the most part, it was dry. And after my first year, I didn't want to go back. And I struggled with going back. But I went back, I had a year under my belt, and I finished it off. And now I look back and say, yeah, that's perfect. I did that, and it was worth it. And this disdain of mine for fiction... Uh, and I guess the bore that fiction caused to me, I, I enjoyed reading, but not fiction, uh, but this all changed one day, and literally it, it took 10 seconds for my whole perspe perspective on fiction to change, from absolute dread, thinking, oh my gosh, this again, to something that I could resonate with, to something that I enjoy reading. Now, that happened at a wedding. It was the summer after I graduated with that English degree, and uh, we went to a wedding, and, and my friend had a plus one, I had a plus one, but we didn't have dates, so we just went together. And it was outside of the city, and far enough drive that you couldn't come back after the ceremony, and so you're in that, or, and get back out in time for the reception. So you're in that limbo zone, you're out of town, you don't know really where you are, and you have to go make the best of your time. So we went out of town, and uh, had the wedding, had the ceremony, and then afterwards, went to Tim Hortons in the town, picked up a coffee, and then kind of sat around, and I didn't have cell reception, so she pulled out her uh, psychology textbooks to study for her GRE, and on that top, top she had a fiction book. And uh, her fiction book was The Fault in Our Stars by John Green. Now, has anyone ever read The Fault in Our Stars? Oh, yeah, I got like a crazy waving hand over here. There's a couple over here. Yeah, another one. So you, a couple have read it there. Have we seen the movie? Okay, so, so the movie, all right. Now, did anyone get through the book without crying? No hands. Oh, oh. <laughs> eh, it didn't really affect me. <laughs> all right, one hand. The movie, same thing, right? Like, you're talking this is a tearjerker of a film of a book. And at the beginning of that book, so I opened this piece of fiction, kind of rolling my eyes, said I've done this all before, and... Uh, the first page was copyright, the second page was copyright, then it was like, uh, this book is dedicated to whoever, whoever. Then the next page was the author's note, and I thought the author's note, well, that's a good place to start. And uh, as I opened it, this is what I read. The author John Green said, this is not so much an author's note 
as an author's reminder of what was printed in small type a few pages ago. This book is a work of fiction. I made it up. Neither novels nor their readers benefit from any attempts to divine whether any facts hide inside a story. Such efforts attack the very idea that made-up stories can matter, which is sort of the foundational assumption of our species. This idea that made-up stories can matter. The author, John Green, he literally put my whole three years of English study into context in one author's note. He completely changed the way I saw things. He was telling his readers, don't read too closely. Don't, don't look at it and scrutinize it for facts. No, this is not a story of, of two actual people that have kind of conjured up into a work of fiction. Don't read it like that. Read it as the fact that made-up stories have some sort of important significance to who we are as human beings. Made-up stories matter. Now, I was lost to this simple statement, even though it is central to the Christian worldview that I've developed. Jesus spoke in parables. He used made-up stories to tell a message, to share with people something that was important. His parables are not factual accounts, but they're something which teach us, in the end, something about who God is. The made-up stories of Jesus matter to his audience, and they still matter to us sitting right here at 2050 Chevrier Soul Sanctuary Community Center this morning. Robert Capon, a, a priest, he said of the parables, the parables are only true because they are like what God is like, not because they're models for us to copy. It's simply a fact that the one thing we dare not under any circumstances imitate is the only thing that can save us. The parables are, one and all, about the foolishness by which grace raises the dead. They apply to no sensible process at all, only to the divine insanity that brings everything out of nothing. I love that. The parables of Jesus matter. They're worth exploring, and today we're going to join, and we're going to dive into the story of the prodigal son. We're going to turn to Luke 15. Now, two years ago, I had the opportunity to speak here at Seoul for the first time ever, and shortly uh, coming on, that was shortly after coming on staff as a summer intern. And the passage that I chose that day to speak on was Luke 15. But after studying Luke 15 more in depth and seeing what Luke 15 has to offer, we're going to take a look at the parable from a different approach this morning. I'm trusting that someone now at your table has their smartphone, perhaps a paper Bible if you're kicking it old school. And I would like you, they laugh. I don't see any paper Bibles though. I see all, yeah, I see all iPads. So this is what I want you to do. I would like you to turn to Luke chapter 15. We are going to read Luke chapter 15 verses 1 to 32 in its entirety. If you want to switch off each paragraph with someone at your table, that's fine. Uh, but as we come together on a Sunday morning here at Seoul, we read the word corporately together. And oftentimes, it's the person who's standing up at the front, and they read, and everyone else kind of follows along on the screen. Today, you're going to read. And I want you to read it as a group. Now, perhaps you're freaking out. I didn't bring my smartphone. I didn't bring my old school paper Bible. But that's okay, because words will be on the screen. So they will flick through them. Oh, 
can you not hear me? Have I been talking this whole time to myself? Okay, they can hear me. I don't know about you back there. Is that staying on my face now? Okay, <laughs> we'll make sure it stays. Better? Okay, you're good. Okay, so we're going to read Luke 15. Um, I'm going to give you the next couple minutes to read it, and then we're going to flash a question up on the screen. And the question is, what kind of significance or what meaning does Luke 15 have to you? And I want you to share that with the members at your table. So this is your time. The words of Luke 15 will be flashing up on the screen. All right, I'm going to direct your attention back here. See, what you just did is you read scripture together. You participated in community together. Can I ask by a show of hands, in this room right now, how many of you have met someone new this morning? All right. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about going outside of your comfort zone, engaging with people that are perhaps outside your personal bubble, and then communicating. Like, this is what we do at Life Group, at, at the Life Group that I'm a part of. We take either a passage of scripture or um, a study, and we look at it, we, did, we read it, we study it on our own during the week. We come together and we share with each other. What is the Lord saying to me through this? What is the Lord saying to us collectively through this? This right here, sitting around the table, is community. Now, thank you for reading that. That was a long 32 verses for some of you. I know Micah over here was having a hard time spitting it out. But after all, he's the grade 9 reading with all the grade 12. So props to you, bud. But here, in our society... We have an affection. We have an affinity, a love for happily ever afters. We love them. And now, actually, just yesterday, Lauren and I were wedding videographers as well. And so we did this, this shot. I borrowed a, a drone from my buddy Will over there. And I flew this drone over the couple. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is beautiful. So I put it on my phone. I quickly edited it. And I threw it up on Instagram. And the first thing that came to my mind was they lived happily ever after. Because it was like the couple walked off into the sunset. It was beautiful. I loved it. So even there in that moment, the first thing that came to my mind was happily ever after. We, we love happily ever afters because at the end of happily ever afters, we feel good. It feels like it's all resolved. And now even in grade nine English, the way we teach grade nines to write stories, they have five main elements that they need to include. They need well-developed characters, a relevant setting, uh, a plot with a clear beginning, middle, and end. They need some sort of conflict, which will plague the characters. And then finally, they need a resolution to the conflict. All those elements work together to create a story, which at the grade 9 level, 9.5 out of 10 times, is a happily ever after. It takes a special grade 9 to write a story that resolves in a way where everyone is not happy. But why should we expect anything different? Because that's what we've taught them since they've grown up. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that happily ever after. It's a nice thought, but they don't often exist. Now, the last story that Jesus tells in Luke 15 troubles us. And it troubles us so much that we often tell the story as a happily ever after. We cut the story short to fit our formula. So collectively here as a group, we're going to take a closer look at that this morning. And to fully understand it, we need to go to Luke uh, chapter 15 verses 1 and 2 to start, which say, Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. 
These first two verses of Luke 15 frame the chapter in its entirety. These are the people that are around Jesus. We have tax collectors and sinners on one hand. We have Pharisees and scribes, the religious elite, on the other. And Jesus here now begins to tell stories, made-up stories that matter, parables. And he begins to explain it, but he has two groups of people who are around him. On one hand, the cheats, the liars, the, the liars, the drunks. And on the other hand is the people who are very pious. So he's got two ends of the spectrum. With these people in earshot, this gives us the context. So after two parables, known as the lost sheep and the second is the lost coin, which you all read together this morning, Jesus comes to tell the parable which we know as the prodigal son. And the prodigal son starts off with an explanation of a younger son's decision to take his inheritance, to run away with it, to go spend it frivolously, to come back to, or to go and, and sit in a pig pen because he's so hungry after he's spent all his money, and then to dream of coming back to his father and say, Father, maybe take me back as a hired hand at best. And he begins the long walk home like the band sang about in that Mumford and Sons song earlier. He begins the long walk home. And of course we know that the father, he runs out to meet his son. He doesn't wait for his son to say, Oh, I've been so bad, father. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer to be worthy to be called your son. The father doesn't even let him get it all out. And he runs to him and he throws his arms around him. And he hugs him and he says, You're home. He tells his servants, Alright, go kill the fattened calf. Go get a ring. Go get a robe. Let's go. Let's party with my son who was lost and is now found. And the sinners around Jesus, they can get on with this. They can be like, okay, Jesus is telling a made-up story that matters, and this affects my life because perhaps I'm that son. Perhaps I've ran away in my own sin. Perhaps I have fled from Jesus, and the Father welcomes me back. And the Father welcomes me home. And not only does he open the doors, he throws a party for me. And this is the group Jesus is talking to. And he's saying, you're welcome home. We can see ourselves as the younger brother. We can see ourselves, the people who have whittled ourselves down to the points of brokenness and despair. And when we hear the Father's voice who says, welcome home. No, 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 I don't need your apology speech. My grace is sufficient for you. We can resonate with that. The, the gift of God's grace defies our comprehension. He doesn't need the speech. He doesn't need to be repaid. He welcomes us home. And Romans 5.28, it says this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still living in our sin, Christ took it upon himself, the Father, the Son, to die for us so that we can be welcomed home. He gave us life. He accepted us and he called us into relationship with him. And now it's maybe our love for happily ever afters, or maybe it's modern North American evangelical traditions which have placed a very high emphasis on morality. But we often end the story right there. We stop at the party. The, the son's been welcomed home, and that's kind of where we leave it. It's a nice happily ever after. Uh, we don't expect the gift of grace, and when God offers it, it blows us away. So here, it's a nice place to leave. But that's not how the parable ends. The truth is, most of, most of us would be satisfied with an ending at verse 24. We'd be happy with that. We can leave 
thinking that made me feel really good and I can go home and I can go about my week resting in the grace of God. We know that God's grace is costly. After all, it costs the life of Jesus. But in the same breath, we know that it's freely offered to us. It's, they all lived happily ever type comfortable. So let's read a little bit more here. Let's refresh from where we came from to see where we're going. Luke 15, 25 to 32. The older son was in the field, and as he came, he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called over one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. So the father came out and entreated him, but he didn't even answer his father. Oh, but he did answer his father. Whoa. Look at these many years that I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who's devoured your wealth and property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. We can tell right off the bat the older brother is aggravated. He is angry. He feels that he's been betrayed by the father. Dad has ripped him off. He reminds his father of his flawless track record. He says, Dad, I've never done anything against you. Dad, everything that I have done has been good and I have done it for you, Dad. Dad, you never even gave me a, a goat. Never mind the fattened calf. Like, you never gave me a chicken. Never mind the turkey you're giving to my brother. And I have done everything for you. What's going on, Dad? Come on. I didn't get the small stuff, and I was good to you. And he was awful to you, and he got it all. But the father replies with arguably the most important line in this made-up story that matters. And he says, son, you've always been here with me. And everything that is mine is yours. That fattened calf is yours too. The love that I have for the other brother is yours too. Everything that is mine is yours, my son. And the older brother has always done the right thing. He has always been good. The good brother, if you want to put it that way. However, the good brother finds himself outside of the party, outside of the celebration, outside of where the festivities are taking place. He's refused to go in. In fact, he called the servant out to him. And in this moment of complaint to his father, the good brother, the older brother, the other brother, is just as lost as was the prodigal son. He is just as lost as the son who took the wealth and who sinned and who squandered it all. The good brother is not lost in spite of his goodness. He is lost because of his goodness. This is the moment where the elder brother tries to use the father to get things. He's tried to prove his worth to dad. His father for him is a means to an end. He's of the mind that the father owes him for his righteousness. He's been so good. Come on, Dad. That echoes. That sounds pretty cool. I'm going to yell more often. Whew. Remember back to the two groups of people who surrounded Jesus at the beginning of the story. Right at verses 1 and 2. 
You had the tax collectors and you had the religious elite. The tax collectors, perhaps us, resonate very well with the younger brother who ran off, who sinned and did everything off and then came back and was accepted back by the love of the Father. The religious elite here is who Jesus is talking to when he starts talking about the older brother. Are you happy that I eat with that tax collector? That I eat with that sinner? That I converse with them? Apparently not. Perhaps us sitting in here this morning, we can relate to the older brother too. Have we been good for the sake of trying to earn our keep in the father's house? Have we perhaps embodied characteristics of both the older brother and the younger brother? In this parable, Jesus looks at the religious elite. He says, hey guys, you're going to have to get over this earning your whole uh, righteousness thing. Because I have come and I've extended my grace to everyone. You can't earn it, but all you have to do is accept it. You can live the most dedicated and religious life, pious as all get out, but at the end of the day, you might still find yourself outside of the party. The foundation of our righteousness, therefore, must be bathed in humility. Our, our acts of righteousness cannot be looking to God and saying, Okay, God, I sinned over here, and right now I'm just going to go. I'm going to make it all better. I'm going to serve in church. I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to give money. God, I'm, I'm going to pay for my sin. God says, no, that's not how it works. You don't need to pay me back for anything. You need to accept the fact that I love you. Because as soon as you start doing that, saying, I've sinned, and here I go. I'm going to do everything. I'm going to make it better. That's when you're lost. Just as lost as you were when you were over in your sin. Romans 3.23 We recognize that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person in this room, myself included, have sinned. We sin regularly. We're not perfect people. Step one is admitting that. Recognizing, alright God, before your righteousness... I, I don't have anything to stand on. I'm a sinner. But then the first part of that verse is that he loves us. He died for us while we were still sinners. That before we even came to good works, before we even came to volunteering in church or serving or whatever, Jesus has accepted us through the grace offered by the Father. The grace that we can do nothing to earn. The older brother was already accepted by the father, not because of his works, but the fact that he was the father's son. You're always with me. Everything I have is yours. And no amount of church involvement, missions, work, volunteering, giving money to the poor is ever going to make you right with God. It doesn't work like that. We are always and only in right relationship with God because of the forgiveness offered to us through Jesus Christ. And the older brother lost sight of this. And he began to believe that he could earn his stay in dad's house. Yet all the older brother had to do was stop trying to earn his stay and accept the fact that the father accepted him. Enjoy, stay, take a part of what the father had to offer. And the older brother and the younger brother epitomize the difference between religion and the gospel. Religion works on this basic principle. I obey, therefore I am accepted. I do what I have to do, therefore I can be a part of community. I do what I have to do. I, I do exactly what's prescribed. And then I get the golden ticket. 
I help with the kids. I'm accepted. I pay a tithe. I'm accepted. All these things. But the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, it operates on the exact opposite premise. I'm accepted first, therefore I obey. I'm accepted because Christ died for me, because this love that I can't quite understand has come to my heart. It has touched me, and therefore I obey. In a response to love of the Father, I obey. In a response to the love of the Father, the acceptance, that's why I help with the kids. That's why I volunteer with Boom Youth. That's why I give money or whatever it may be. All these things are because we are first accepted. You choose to follow Jesus. You are not forced into following Jesus to be accepted. And believing in God does not force us into behaving like a Christian. It's the acceptance of God's grace that leads us, that compels us to obey, to follow what Jesus outlined. And today we can see ourselves in both the younger, maybe the older brother, perhaps both. Whether we're lost in our sin, whether we're desperate, or whether we're lost in our self-righteous attempts to repay God, we can rest secure in the fact that the Father's grace extends for us all. The Father in the parable welcomed both sons home. He said, what are you doing outside? And then he ran to the, or first he runs to the other son, the son coming down the road. He accepts him. And then he goes outside to meet his son who wouldn't come in, and he accepts him. All our father wants is for us to come home and to celebrate with him. And when you operate on that premise, the fact that you're already accepted by the father, you, know, you no longer need to earn your keep. When you take each step, understanding that you're walking in the grace of God the Father, and you then end up obeying. You want to get more of God. Once you can begin to somehow understand the fact that he loves you no matter what you've done or no matter what you can do to repay him, you want more of God because there's an infection about that love. There's a feeling that you can't explain inside of your soul to know that you're loved, to know that you're accepted. And that prods you to go deeper. When you're walking in the grace of God, the Father, you are the pure joy of the only person whose opinion matters in this whole universe. And that should be enough said. So today, as you go, I want you to remember that God the Father has already extended his grace to you. No matter if you're the younger brother, far from home, or you're the older brother, who perhaps has stamped your foot outside the door. And maybe you don't relate with the older brother thinking, oh yeah, everyone's welcome in church. And I'm not going to say if you're going to accept that person, I'm going to put my foot down. But maybe you're the blind side of the older brother. The side of the older brother that doesn't see he's trying to earn his righteousness. Whoever you resonate with, the father accepts you into the house. He invites you to the party. The fact is that there is absolutely nothing we can do to prove our worth to Christ. We don't know how the older brother's story ends. Grade 9 English students, this is what we call a cliffhanger. He can make a decision A, to enter the party, or he can make a decision B, to be lost in his ways. And for us, that's exciting. Because the next chapter is a chapter that we write. The next chapter is us deciding to go into the party and accept the grace of the Father, or the next chapter is us deciding to go back out to the field and to turn our back on the party. We are, in the or we are in the position where we get to make that choice. We're not the hero in the parable. We're not the father. 
We're one son or the other. So are you going to realize, are you going to accept the grace of God? Are you going to come into the party? Or are you going to choose to stay out? For me, the decision's easy. And I encourage you, no matter which brother that you resonate with, to come to Jesus. To come to Jesus, maybe broken. To come to Jesus while you're self-righteous. To come to Jesus while you're trying to earn your keep. To come to Jesus when you're so lost in your sin you don't know what the next step is. To come to Jesus. Because you know that when you come to Jesus, he will not close the door on you. The door is open to the party. It's open now and it's open forever. Allow the grace of God to cover you. Allow the grace of God to move into every facet of your life, whether you understand it or not. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for the gift of grace, the gift of grace that we don't understand, the gift of grace that just goes beyond our comprehension, but the fact that you sent your son to die to extend that grace to us. God, that we may live eternally with you. And Lord, as we go from here, may you sober our hearts, sober our minds to realize that grace and to be open to accepting it without asking or without trying to repay you. There's nothing we can do. God, may we understand that. God, we're thankful for who you are. Amen.